Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, it has been a busy few weeks in our nation's capital. Just one week after a pro-Trump mob attacked the U.S. Capitol, the House impeached President Trump for a second time. This all comes one week, of course, before Joe Biden is set to take the oath of office. Lots going on as Democrats prepare to take control of the White House and both houses of Congress. We'll be joined by a woman who knows firsthand the difference between being in the majority and the minority. Former California Senator Barbara Boxer will talk with us about the week's events and what comes next. Barbara Boxer was elected to the U.S. Senate, of course, in 1992, the so-called Year of the Woman. California. Women only got a year. You know? I know. I mean, men the, get, the, the rest this, of the years are men of the Year of the Man, I guess. This is something to discuss with <laughs> the senator, I think. Um, you know, she was elected at the same time that voters sent Dianne Feinstein to the Senate. And uh, Senator Boxer retired in 2016. She was replaced, of course, by Kamala Harris, who we all know is now going to be the vice president of the United States as of next week. <laughs> Senator exactly. Barbara Boxer, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good to have you. Well, it's fun to be with you. Good, good, good. Well, we want to talk about impeachment. But before we do that, um, you know, obviously we were all stunned and shocked, if not surprised, by what happened last week at the Capitol. And as someone who worked in that building for so many years, what was going through your mind as you watched that unfold? Scott, as I watched that unfold, it was really like nothing I ever felt before. I would say to everyone listening, if, 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 if you're in the sanctuary of your home and there's a home inva- invasion of a big group of people and they start destroying everything you love, that capital for me, I worked there for you know, 34 years, 10 years in the House and 24 years in the United States Senate, and... I have to say, after 9-11, a lot of security was put in place, and I thought, oh, my goodness, they're making it a fortress. And I could tell you, as I watched those insurrectionists run up the steps of the Senate, those precious steps that I could not, after 9-11, take you up there to get onto the Senate floor, because the sharpshooters would say, get down. You could only go like two, three steps. And they say, get down. That's how the security was. And, the, and as I watched, I thought, this, this, how could this happen? How could this be? And I think those are questions that are going to be answered over the next few months and weeks because I do not understand it. And just so you know, if a United States senator or a House member walked in to, to try to get to the floor of where they work, the floor of the House, the floor of the Senate, 
the guards had to make sure it was you. Show me your pin. Are you sure you're not, you know, are you sure you're a member? And yet all this happened before my eyes and the smashing of those windows and watching them take things that were symbols of our country. It's, I know I'm going on and on, but it was emotional yeah. to the yeah. point that it was almost an out-of-body experience. And my friends were calling me, and I said, I can't talk. I don't want to talk today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's horrible. It's a violation of our democracy and of our freedom and of our country. I just want to ask, you know, in terms of uh, there will be, of course, an investigation, a very thorough, multiple probably investigations. And one of the things that stuck out for me is how some of the members, the Democrats, and especially ones with security or military backgrounds, are saying something weird was happening the day before, that there seemed to be people in the Capitol going through large groups, and, and you know, they want to know what, why were they guests of those members of Congress? What, what do you make of that? Well, it's very suspicious. I can't say, you know, what happened, because obviously I don't know. I only know what you know. But I'm saying to you that they have photos they know from video cameras who was taking these people on a quote-unquote tour of the Capitol. Um, I want you to know, I, I spoke to, uh, to a couple of my friends in the United States Senate, and one of them told me he was in his office in the Capitol, you know, waiting for a vote because it was right near the floor. And that's where a lot of us would go, especially, I would say, in COVID. They don't want to all be in the room at the same time. And he was with his spouse. And the oh, – it's hard to even tell you the story – The the insurrectionists looked through the window from the outside and saw they were in – the room, and they found their way to this room, which is very hard to find, in the Capitol's office, and started banging on the door and banging on the door. He said it felt like an hour, but he doesn't know, you know, he, he lost track of time. And yelling, kill the infidels. Hmm. Wow. And banging and banging. And I, <laughs> they were rescued eventually. Uh, but had those people gotten in there, I don't know what would have happened. And I spoke to another senator who said he was on the floor of the Senate, was whisked away, but somebody found his office in the Capitol and destroyed it and took, he had a picture of himself with the Dalai Lama, and they took all kinds of things like that. And Lord knows what they're going to do with this stuff. This is, I'm telling you these stories, which I don't think have been told yet, to just Give everyone an idea of just how dangerous. And the last point I make is that I just saw a young man who got elected to Congress, a Republican, who voted for impeachment, which is very brave to do, might I say, if you're a Republican. It's the right thing and a brave thing. That's the guy from Michigan, right? But this, this particular man said that he's having to wear, you know, body armor. He's asked to... Please give him body armor because they're very afraid they're going to be killed. Well, can I ask you, too? Yeah, it's it's really remarkable, I think, given what you spelled out, too. I mean, having covered capitals for my entire career, you know, you're always thinking about, am I acting properly? Am I going to get kicked out by the sergeant at arms? Like, you know, and but 
part of I think what is especially um, potentially really scary about this isn't just you know the idea of maybe people giving tours where they were you know doing this recon, but you also have members tweeting out Nancy Pelosi's um, location. You have you know you have people who are followers of this QAnon conspiracy. There, I'm just wondering like how you think people in Congress are dealing with that given it I mean it just feels like it must be so different than it was when you were there even just a few short years ago yes well as I say I've been talking to colleagues I've never heard fear um, in their voices before and we've had a lot of things believe me and I was there after 9-11 when we thought a plane was coming to the Capitol so I mean I've seen a lot but this is from within and there's nothing as disturbing, shocking, and worrisome as, you know, terrorists that are homegrown. That's what we have. And that's why it is critical to have this investigation, find out exactly what happened, and get our country to a place where there's no fear. And we have to deal with it. Mm. And that we will. Yeah. Take us back, if you would, to that day, uh, September 11th, 2001, that terrifying yeah. day uh, when you and your, as you said, you and your colleagues were hustled out of that building. And in the, in the middle of that terror, there was a, a funny anecdote, which you t- you've told afterwards about your shoes. <laughs> yes. And uh, yes. can you just recount that for us? Sure, sure I will. Um, yes. I'll never forget it. I was um, in the Capitol building at the leader's office, the leader then was Tom Daschle. We were just going over the budget and Medicare and Social Security. I'll never forget it. There was a little camera, uh, not a camera, a little TV, you know, one of those little ones just right on the wall. And out of the corner of someone's eye, they said, wait a minute, a pilot must have had a heart attack. Look at what happened. And we saw the World Trade Center. And I kept saying, this is crazy. And they, let's get back to work. We'll keep our eye on it, but let's get back to work. And we started talking. All of a sudden, out the window, we saw the flames from the Pentagon. And immediately came in the Capitol Police that everyone now knows, the Capitol Police. And they said, we have to get you all out of here. Get out of here. And they grabbed the leader uh, and his assistant, Harry Reid, and it was Tom Dashlin Harry, and they sent them to an undisclosed location, and the rest of us, they said, just get out and go back to your office. Get away from the Capitol. So um, Jay Rockefeller, who looked to me to be seven foot six, he must have been a <laughs> seven. You know, I'm six, only seven, five, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, and I'm like f- barely five feet tall. And he, he, he grabs my arm, and he says, take off those high heels. We're going. And I said, no terrorist is going to make me take off my high heels. <laughs> and I kept up with him, and we ran down the steps, and the rest is history of what happened. And then that night, uh, we were in a safe location, and we all decided we need to go back to the Capitol and stand right in front of it, and we sang the Star Spangled Banner. And everybody, everybody together. Well, that was a threat from without. This is a threat from within. And it is a different, uh, more terrifying threat in a way. You know, we're able to harden, you know, our airports and do all the things we did is so difficult. Not that the threat is 
over forever, but we dealt with it. This is harder to deal with. So the first thing you have to do is get to the bottom of it. Yeah. All right, um, Senator, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more of our conversation with former California Senator Barbara Boxer. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with former California Senator Barbara Boxer. And Senator, um, we I'm sure you were watching yesterday at least part of the impeachment vote in the House. Uh, and unlike uh, either the impeachment of Bill Clinton or the first impeachment of uh, Donald Trump, there were 10 Republicans of 10 members of the president's party who did vote for impeachment at, uh, you know, 10 more than voted last time. Um, what do you make of that? And d- did you see courage in those votes? I definitely see courage in any Republican who stands up to Donald Trump. And I mean by that political courage, I actually want to add physical courage at this point in time. And yes, this is the only president to be impeached twice. He will go down in history in that way. And there were the most votes for impeachment than were ever cast, you know, against any other president. So it's, uh, it's very sobering. And yes, I feel the people who did this were brave. Uh, and in many ways, I appreciate that. Uh, Senator, I'm curious. I mean, there's a lot of conversation happening now about how to handle the Senate trial. Um, obviously, Joe Biden doesn't want his entire first hundred days, you know, made up of that. But I, I also think having washed Washington as long as you and we have, it seems like, you know, if, if this could really fade away if they don't tackle it. I mean, what do you think the best um, way forward is for Democrats right now? Well, I think the way the Clinton impeachment was handled is, uh, is, is kind of a, a way to go. And how, how, how was that? We decided we had to do the business of governance, and yet we didn't want this to linger. So as somebody said, you've got to walk and chew gum at the same time. You can do, you know, six hours of, of the business at hand, meaning uh, getting the votes on Joe's uh, team in place, and whatever emergency legislation that that he wants to get through and Congress agrees. Uh, and then you can turn to the impeachment uh, at the end of the day and, and put several hours in on that. So 
I, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm not saying this is what is going to happen, but if I were to guess at what would happen, that's what I think Chuck Schumer will do. Now, Chuck Schumer had asked Mitch McConnell to bring back the Senate this very week and deal with this before the 20th, and Mitch McConnell refused to do that. Mm. So now it lands in Chuck's lap. Yeah. So I, I do think that's what they may well do, or they may do three days of work on all of Joe's, Joe Biden's, President Biden's list that he needs to do, and save two days or one day for the impeachment. Yeah. You know, this impeachment trial is a pretty, it's only one article, right? Mm-hmm. And it, they've got some amazing lawyers um, as house managers, and they're constitutional experts, they're experts in free speech and civil rights, and in, in criminal law. So they'll be able to present that pretty, pretty easily, and I think it could, they could get done with it in a couple of weeks. Yeah. You, uh, we mentioned at the top, got elected along with Dianne Feinstein in 1992. It was the year of the woman uh, on the heels of the Clarence Thomas uh, confirmation hearings, where, as you recall, Joe Biden, uh, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, got a lot of criticism from women. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some of that criticism came back. Uh, during the campaign, and you really stood by him. But I'm wondering, you know, you know, as someone who has been such a strong advocate for women in your career, what do you think Joe Biden learned from those Clarence Thomas hearings in the aftermath? Well, he's learned a tremendous amount uh, in the years that he was vice president and after that, and, you know, hearing from people uh, who basically said that he was trying to uh, in his own words, really, uh, protect Anita Hill by saying, let's not call any more witnesses. You know, he was concerned about how it would turn. But, you know, I think he sees a lot of us felt he should have allowed witnesses to corroborate some of the things that she had said. And so he understood that. But he's really tried to dedicate himself to helping women um, in, in, in ways through charity and other, in other ways of helping, you know, give women education. And, and he's certainly shown that he has a huge number of terrifically qualified women in, in his organization right now. So I think rather than dwell on the mistakes of the past, I know he spoke to Anita Hill about all this, and it's not that they're going to always agree on everything, but he confronted it. Um, you know, now he has a chance to do so much for women, for men, for children, for families, for the middle class, to get us out of this pandemic and get this economy moving and deal with this, you know, domestic terrorism. He's, he's got so much on his plate. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would, was thinking even more than FDR, you know, in the, high, in the, in the depths of the Depression, this is unbelievable. And we have to fix things. We just have to get them done. Well, I want to ask you about one policy area. Um, I feel like we're obviously spending so much time right now thinking about Trump and the end of uh, his you know, presidency, but also COVID. Um, and hopefully that is not going to be a long-term problem. One th- sort of existential threat, though, that you've worked on is climate change. And I'm just curious what you think needs to happen and how much of a priority the Biden administration can make that because that I mean I know you've said that that has been one of your biggest regrets is that you didn't oh, yeah. weren't able to pass some of those bills. Oh yes, do I have so many regrets. 
we came within six votes of reaching 60 to, uh, to have put in place putting a price on carbon, which is the only way, I shouldn't say the only way, but the best way to move toward clean energy. And once we do that, we create so many jobs and clean up the air and, um, you know, everybody wins on it. But let me tell you the great, the great news. Number one, uh, President-elect Biden has said very clearly that climate change is, is, you know, right at the top of his priorities after this pandemic. And he sees this as a way to really create good-paying, great jobs right here in America. And it's such, it is such a win-win because moving to uh, clean energy, that means putting solar rooftops on houses you know, you can't contract that out to anybody else. It's got to be done right here. And, you know, clean cars. And taking the lead on these things means that we will have the technology and the products that we can get around, you know, the world. And that helps us as well. So I, you- I think, so, yeah, I'm just going to finish here. I think Joe sees climate change as a threat, but he sees it as a huge opportunity to create really good jobs and get this carbon out of the air so that we don't have a planet that's uninhabitable. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. You're listening to Political Breakdown, and our guest today is former California Senator Barbara Boxer. And, Senator, you know a little something about being a senator in a closely divided Senate. It was, I think, 50-50 after the, 20, or the 2000 elections. Uh, George W. Bush gets elected, and then I think Vermont Senator Jim Jeffords actually left the GOP, so that gave the Democrats a slight edge. But what, uh, what advice do you have for incoming Vice President Kamala Harris? I'm wondering, have you talked? with her about what it's like to, you know, preside over a Senate that is just split right down the middle. I have not spoken to her in a very long time, um, but I could tell you she is serving with Joe Biden, who is a master of the Senate. He spent so many years there, and when he was vice president, he sat in that chair that she'll sit in. So I think she's got the most incredible mentor. She also is, has a great advantage from any other vice president who would not come from the Senate because she knows the Senate. She knows the players. She knows how it all works. So, I mean, I honestly think she's extremely well prepared, perhaps one of the best prepared vice presidents to sit in that seat as president of the Senate. But I could tell you in those days when we had 50-50, I remember it. The good news was that Tom Daschle and Trent Lott, who were the leaders of the both parties then got along really well. And so they were able to function in a very, very fair way. And they did. And that helped in terms of what numbers we're going to have in the committees and how is it going to run and how are we going to decide what comes up before the body. So, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm not holding my breath. I'm hopeful that Mitch McConnell (laughs) will become a little bit more of a shall we say, work for country rather than party and see us, you know, be able to replicate that, that sense of camaraderie that we had. Um, there's a lot of people in the Senate now who are uh, on the Republican side who are so far to the right that I, I don't know that we get them. But I think there's enough to make a difference. And I can tell you one of the great things about Joe Biden is that he knows how to bring people together more than anybody else. Yeah. 
Senator, I mean, you're talking about camaraderie and, and bipartisanship, but at the same time, Dianne Feinstein, uh, you served with for many years, has really been attacked as being too bipartisan. You know, there there was so much uh, concern after um, the hearings of the last Supreme Court justice uh, that she was sort of too close to Lindsey Graham. There's been questions about her age and ability to do the job. I mean, what do you think of all of these attacks? And, and do you think it's time for her to step down? Well, I'm just not going to go into that. I, you know, I made history with Diane Feinstein, and um, let me tell you, we did a lot of good things together. So I think you'd have to ask her the questions that you're asking me. We, we'd love to, but she won't talk she won't to call us. us. About it. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Um, let me ask you though. Let me ask you about Kamala Harris. I was—I have to say—I was a little surprised. We're all texting each other here as we're talking. I was a little surprised when you said I haven't talked to Kamala Harris in a long time. Um, is—is is there anything to make of that? I mean, it, it, I know that she I mean, and, and Senator Feinstein were not particularly that I close. Really hard, them and you know, I'm here if she needs me. Of course, I, I'm not the type of person. You know, you know the type of person you haven't called, you haven't visited. <laughs> you know. I, I know what she's going through. Imagine what she's going through. And, you know, if she feels she needs my input, I am right here. And, and she knows that. All right. Um, I do want to ask you about something that was in the news last week. You, um, sure. the, the Biden inaugural committee returned you $500. Um, you donated after reports that you were registered as a foreign agent for a Chinese firm that's actually been accused of helping the government imprison Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. So you decided to drop them as a client after this. Um, and you said that it's my continued involvement has become a negative distraction for the effort. To me, that sounds like a political answer. I'm worried. I'm I'm curious about the ethics. You've been such an advocate for you know your whole career. Um, why take on a client like that to begin with? Well, I haven't. I it took me less than 24 hours to drop that client. I don't know if you saw that, and I've deregistered, so I don't have that client. But let me let me put it in in from my perspective and why I considered it. Mm-hmm. So I had registered to consult for this Chinese camera firm. They have business and jobs in America since 2006. And they really needed guidance on living up to the spirit and letter of American human rights laws. And that was my intent. But the fact that I did have this association um, made it sound like I was hurting human rights. Like, mm-hmm. that's the way you ask and I'm trying to do the opposite. So I realized I made a mistake. I couldn't do it. Yeah. So immediately stepped up and said the three words, no politician or former politician or no reporter ever wants to make. I was wrong. Yeah. I mean, do you feel, was, is this an inherent challenge of becoming a lobbyist after you've been in a, a position of power? Well, the truth is, I wasn't signed on for a lobbyist. I was signed on as a strategist, and that's mm. very different. I don't ever lobby any peop- any colleagues, and I that's a difference. Yeah. But um, I, I no, I haven't had this problem. I've I've had a wonderful several years. I've been working. Uh, I taught for you at USC at the Center for the Political Future, and now I advise them, and I've done consulting work mostly in healthcare and the environment, and I've. I'm doing some media work, so... Mm-hmm. You talk to us. You, you return our calls. Charitable. Yes, we, we appreciate your calling us back all the time. Hey, Liz, we're short on time, but right. I want to ask you, I know you live in Rancho Mirage, and I'm told you live in the same 
gated community that Spiro Agnew retired in. Um, what, <laughs> why, what is it about these Democrats? They all want to live like Republicans when they retire. Well, if you knew this community, you wouldn't see the ghost of Spiro Agnew. It's quite different. Now, it's a very diverse, wonderful spot, and I love it. Um, but the reason I wanted to be down here is because it's so peaceful. And, you know, after my hectic years of life, I thought this would be a good thing. But you also have a tiny little 800-square-foot place in Oakland. We love that, too. Are you taking up golf, or what are you doing down Yeah, what's... What well, let's just say what I do to stay healthy is do a lot of walking. That's, the most, that's what I do most. You know, I try to really walk every day, two to three miles, and that's wow. important. And, you know, I usually can get it done, and, that, and that's what I like to do. You know, in this time of COVID, it's really hard um, to, you know, to, to get up and go. But at least in this beautiful climate, I can walk around the community. It's it's good. All nice right. break from the news. Yeah, exactly. Well, Senator Bosser, uh, thank yes, you so much. Not that and... I don't listen. I listen to the news <laughs> while I'm walking. To be oh, honest. Oh yeah, it's hard. It's hard. That's what podcasts <laughs> are for. Senator, thank you so much. Stay well, and uh, all the thank best to you in 2021. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's it for today's political breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarotti. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team also includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.